if you think about it, so much of human life is like that. And so many of our moral obligations, quite frankly, are, are unchosen. And um, so I think early on, I had this idea that like, well, autonomy is, is important. It's actually like pretty limited <laughs> in terms of what it can explain in terms of human excellence and what we value and, and why we value it. And so I think what was appealing to me about this concept of self-transcendence, the idea that um, it's just something that's greater than oneself. Jennifer Frey is Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of South Carolina, a faculty fellow at the Institute for Human Ecology at the Catholic University of America, and a New Begin Interfaith Fellow with the Carver Project. She works extensively in moral philosophy and is particularly interested in matters of virtue. She's also an engaging public philosopher who writes for such popular venues as First Things, Image Journal, and The Point Magazine. And she's the host of a popular podcast titled Sacred and Profane Love, which takes up the relationship between philosophy, theology, and literature. We talked today about her range of work and about the connections between universities and the public. I'm Matthew Ekman of the BYU Faith and Imagination Institute. Jen Frey, it's good to see you. Thanks for coming on the podcast to talk. Yeah, it's great to see you as well. Now, I've got to say, this is there's a story here because you were on campus at BYU about, I don't know, a month, month and a half ago. And while you were there on campus, we sat down together and recorded a podcast episode with the fancy podcast equipment, uh, only to find out later that one of the mics was not working. So, yeah. so, so you agreed to come back on, but today I'm on Zoom and you're on Zoom. So it was also convenient a month and a half ago and didn't work. So let's hope yeah. it comes today. Yeah, well, I'm happy to be back in a sense. <laughs> you're good to do this. Two for one, right? Actually, one. Yeah. So anyway, here we go. Um, Okay, I want to go back to when you were 16 years old. All right. So if someone approached you when you're 16 and told you about your future, uh, what would have surprised you most? That you'd be a philosophy professor, that you'd be a devout Catholic, or a mother of six children? Yeah. Um, I think the most surprising one there is mother of six children. Okay. I mean, but a Catholic is pretty surprising too, just to, yeah. <laughs> a, you know, and those are a little bit of a package deal. But um, yeah, I mean, when I was 16, I was an atheist and my conception of myself and my future was very much as a stridently independent person, very protective of my freedom and autonomy and my ambitions. Yeah. So, um, and I, and I certainly didn't see myself as a philosopher. I don't really think I had any conception of what that might concretely look like. Um, but it's not completely surprising that I would do something intellectual, something that involved a, a great deal of writing and reading because I already enjoyed those things. So. But yeah, I, I was very against motherhood. So I think that's, you know, <laughs> or maybe not against it, but it just was not something that appealed to me. Yeah, sure. At that age. Like a lot of 16 year olds, yeah. These three areas, okay? So your, your, your work as a philosopher, uh, your experience as a religious, like a devout Catholic, and your experience as a mother, are these areas of life at all integrated with each other? Or are they really, I mean, are they, 
vitally connected in some ways, or are they really separate areas that you simply balance? Well, I mean, the first two are very vitally connected, as a matter of fact. Um, so my conversion was very intellectually oriented. You know, the easiest way to sum it up is to just say that I read my way into the Catholic faith um, pretty much by myself, <laughs> so, which is an interesting way to come into it. Uh, I was certainly the only person in my RCIA class coming from that perspective. Um, and I think, you know, the, the family and the motherhood kind of fell into place as a result of that. But I was already, um, in some sense, even though I wasn't being paid money and I didn't, you know, I wasn't licensed to practice philosophy. Uh, I was very much a, you know, a young philosopher uh, in training when I converted. And I was, um, I was baptized when I was 20. So, which is, you know, not typical for a Catholic or even a Catholic convert because most Catholic converts are just coming over from some variety of Protestantism. Mm -hmm. um, but I was coming over from, you know, just a typical American pagan <laughs> upbringing, uh, just a, just a kid of the seventies. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we just had a podcast conversation, a recording with um, a woman named Sally Reed, who's a poet. She's English. Uh -huh. uh, and she also was an atheist and a convert uh, to Catholicism in her, her case, it was her uh, a few years older than you were. I think she wanted to say she was in her thirties when, when she mm, came. Yeah. So interesting that yeah, this is just kind of an accident. We're not looking for Catholic converts per se for the podcast. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, but it's, a, it's, it's an interesting yeah. fact. Actually, a good story in your case. Now, and I yeah. Love, yeah. Anything else you want to say about that? So I was just going to say that um, I talk about it in much greater detail. Um, I, I was on Catholic TV, EWTN, on a on a little program called The Journey Home, which is people telling their conversion stories. So there's like a long conversation uh, with Marcus Grodi, who's the longstanding host of that show. And then I also talk about my conversion um, for, uh, I forget the name, oh, the, I forget the name of the center. This is terrible, but it's um, a center at uh, Loyola Chicago. So there are two videos online where I talk about it in great detail if anybody wants. And I've seen to look on, into that. Yeah, I've seen it on EWTN, and that's it's a good interview. It's a good conversation, actually. I, I can recommend Thanks. that to, to listeners. Yeah. Um, for sure. Um, yeah. Now, I'm interested in talking with you about your work on philosophy and theology in the public sphere. But yeah. that work um, in the public sphere acquires greater force because of your work as a philosopher who's accomplished um, a lot of things just in terms of your own discipline, your own field. Let me ask yeah. a couple of questions about that then. So you describe yourself as a moral philosopher. Uh -huh. And you've been involved in some large projects. You know, you've had big grants from large foundations. You've got a series of articles and edited volumes. You've published, et cetera. And you've written a lot about the subject of self-transcendence. And I wonder if you could give uh -huh. our listeners a sense for what draws you to the subject of self-transcendence and what you're arguing for in that uh, domain. Yeah, so something that I noticed really early on when I was studying moral philosophy and that, that was kind of a hook for me in philosophy. I was really interested in questions of not just what is right and wrong, although that's an interesting question, but more like what could possibly justify a statement 
for example, that murder is always wrong. Um, you know, like there's, like, there's just never a good situation to murder someone or where <laughs> murdering someone is like the good thing to do. So I was really interested in questions like that as an atheist, it's sort of like, you know, it was clear to me that like religious people had a story about that, but if you don't have God, then how can you say this, right? And um, so I was interested in, in these questions all along. And, um, you know, I think for me, something that didn't really resonate with me, even as an atheist, was this idea that um, the basic notion of moral philosophy is autonomy, right? Um, and of course, this takes all kinds of guises, but the most famous would be Kant's conception of autonomy. Um, and the reason why is I thought that it didn't, that, that theories of ethics that were completely grounded in autonomy were just sort of um, blind to some of the best aspects of human life or the best forms of human excellence. So to just give an example that I think really clarifies this, uh, one of the most famous contemporary Kantians, Christine Korsgaard, um, she, she and I were at a conference together because we were all contributors to a volume. And she was um, giving, you know, her view, which is, which is very famous. And at some point I just, you know, I raised my hand and I said, well, let me tell you a story. And I said, in an interview, somebody asked Paul McCartney how he came up with the song Yesterday, which is like his most famous song and blah, blah, blah. And McCartney responded as follows. I just woke up one morning and it was in my head completely. And I simply like wrote it down, right? I wrote down the notes. So it was like, something just was given to me and I received it. And a lot of accounts of art are like this. And of course, if you go back to Plato, there's this whole idea of like divine madness and receptivity and like, whatever. And I said, well, but it seems like on your view, that song um, isn't, that sort of thing doesn't have any value because things only have value when they're expressions of our autonomy and we self-determine and we choose them. And she said, she basically said, well, yeah, you know, like that doesn't have any value and that makes the song way less interesting. And, and I was just like really st struck by this because actually, if you think about it, so much of human life is like that, you know, I mean, where it's not, and, and so many of our moral obligations, quite frankly, are, are unchosen. And um, so I think early on, I had this idea that like, well, autonomy is, is important. It's actually like pretty limited <laughs> in terms of what it can explain in terms of human excellence and what we value and, and why we value it. And so I think what was appealing to me about this concept of self-transcendence, which is a concept that who basically comes out of certain streams of personality psychology in the 20th century. But the basic idea is something that's been around forever and you can find in, in most philosophers. And that is the idea that um, it's just something that's greater than oneself, right? So when we think about um, actions, 
that are self-transcendent or that are motivated in ways that are self-transcendent, we think of things that people do not because they benefit themselves, um, but because they see it as contributing to a good that is bigger than them. So traditional conceptions of the common good would all fit into this, but also any action that is generative, right? Where the fruits of the activity are really for future generations. Like you're not going to see them, but you might dedicate your life to them, right? And so this like includes all sorts of things like, you know, your willingness to die for your country and your willingness to like give, give everything for a certain cause, right? Where it just, it's not benefiting you per se. Um, and that's also not why you're doing it. Yeah. And um, so I had this uh, big grant with my co-VI, Candace Vogler, and we worked with a lot of people in the social sciences. And what you find empirically, um, just if you look at the data, is that people who score high on various self-transcendence measures are people who inevitably have um, better mental health, are people who score higher in measure in in um, instruments that measure your ability to find meaning and purpose in your life. And so interested in like why that would be the case philosophically right if you you can just sort of look at the data but the question is like why why is why does the data look like that and what you find in a lot of ancient and medieval philosophy to a lesser extent modern moral philosophy uh, which is very for a variety of reasons very focused on the individual and individual autonomy and individual rights but what you find in these older traditions and you find them across cultures, right? Uh, in, in any of the sort of ancient wisdom traditions, what you find is the idea that um, contributing to the common good or thinking and acting and being motivated in ways that we would consider self-transcendent are actually seen as the best ways of living or the most morally salient ways. And so we were just interested in connecting that to work that we were already doing on virtue and connecting virtue to the common good. And so thinking of human happiness or what the Greeks called eudaimonia, flourishing, living well, in terms of not just an individual good or a private good. Um, a lot of people read Plato and Aristotle in that way, and then they get really confused. A bad way to read them both of those thinkers um, understand eudaimonia as a common good, right? Mm -hmm. So if it's a common good, it's a good that's not competitive, but more importantly, it's participatory. So it's a good that people um, bring into being together and enjoy together, right? So it can't be parceled out to any individual. Common goods can't be parceled out like that. Um, and we were trying to connect that with notions of self-transcendence. That was a really fun project, really yeah, fun. Yeah, it sounds like a great project. Reminds me, just you know, this is familiar, I think, to anybody who's a Christian, just Christ's sort of adage, right, that those who lose their lives will find their lives, and those yeah. who save their lives will lose them. It's that paradox, right, where self-loss equals some kind of really transcendent gain, 
Um, well, and yeah, and I also think just the Christian conception of grace, it's a yes. gift, you know, like faith, it's a gift, like you don't earn it. Um, you know, grace is unmerited, it's a gift, but it's the best thing, actually. Yeah, um, yeah so. That's right. Yeah, no, it's a great project. Um, a great topic. Um, now, you've done a lot of work in your discipline, but you've also done a lot of work in public forums, right? So you've written for venues like First Things and Image Journal and The Point Magazine, and you've given lots of public lectures, and you've mm -hmm. participated in conversations at the Veritas Forum, and you host a popular podcast, um, Sacred and Profane Love, and more, right? You're very mm -hmm. much a public philosopher. Back yeah. to this time travel game, which we opened, right? Go back not to when you were 16, just, but just go back 10 years ago, right? Mm -hmm. At that time, you knew you'd be a philosophy professor, but mm -hmm. did you think then that you'd become as involved with public humanities and public theology, really, as you have become? No, it was never a goal. It was kind of like most great things in my life, something that just kind of happened, you know, and it, it wasn't part of any big plan or... Um, I think that, you know, I was always, um, I think I always had, um, maybe just a gift for taking really complicated things and, and just explaining them to people with no background in philosophy. Um, and I think that translation is not something that all philosophers have, which is fine. You know, I can't imagine Kant really being a, a great public intellectual. <laughs> the Kant uh, podcast failed. You know, yeah. yeah. Um, but who knows? Maybe I'm underestimating him. <laughs> um, but yeah, that was just something that that I was good at, and um, and I also really enjoy. Um, it's a it's a challenge that I think bears a lot of fruit for me intellectually is like, how can I explain what I'm doing? Uh, not just to like my mom, although it is important to me to explain it to my mother and my father and people who, you know, are just interested in what I'm doing generally, but to colleagues outside of philosophy in the university, right? I want to be able to tell them, I want to be able to go to people in the social sciences and be like, this is what I'm doing. How does it bear on what you're doing? And I think that, um, something that philosophy has really lost sight of in the last 150 years, but especially in the last 50 years, is this idea that um, we should be informed by literally everything. And I think philosophy has become really specialized and narrows in ways that are just bad for philosophy, um, just, just across the board and not just intellectually, but very practically and pragmatically bad for philosophy. And um, so I think it's been really good for me to break out of the very narrow silos of my discipline. And I've also found it intellectually liberating because it turns out that when you start to talk to people who have different frameworks or reading different people are just bringing different skills to the table, um, you will be a better philosopher. <laughs> Um, and yeah, so it just, it just kind of organically became something that was very important to me and that I actually just really enjoy. Okay. 
And you do the gift for it, by the way. I think you are really good at taking sort of complex things and explaining them in ways that are, they kind of, they, they get to the kind of the most core elements and present them logically. That's something I really appreciate about what you do. Let me ask you though, you have published this article, a, a big article actually in the Point Magazine about how this idea you talked about, the best philosophy always has some kind of vision of unified knowledge, right? There's some kind mm -hmm. of template or touchstone that can hold all of reality together and you talk there about how philosophy as it's practiced at the university level doesn't lead to anything like that kind of unity. And right. you know, there, are, there are reasons for that that are historical reasons and intellectual kind of epistemological reasons, et cetera, um, which makes for its own kind of good conversation. But my question really is this, for an idea that's large like that, um, what benefit do you see in, in articulating that kind of idea in a public forum like the Point Magazine, as opposed to, creating like some kind of, um, you know, kind of conversation among other university people about that very thing where it's a university discussion as opposed to a public discussion. Why take that kind of an argument and go public with it as opposed to kind of going across the university? Well, I mean, it's interesting. I, you know, I was invited to write that piece. So it wasn't like I had this idea in my head, like I've got to write for the point and it'll have these effects. Like they just kind of asked me to um, write about this in a general way. And I thought, okay, sure. So I sat down and thought about it. But one thing that I will say is that that piece got such a tremendous reaction. And that piece led to all kinds of projects and initiatives. And that was all totally unforeseen. And so I think even though I didn't intend it, I think the fact that this piece led in so many different directions and it started so many conversations, uh, really at every level, like students, parents, administrators, it was, I was totally overwhelmed and surprised. I was very surprised. I just thought, whatever, maybe a couple of people will read this. Um, I think that just shows the power of a public forum, right? And the power of, you know, taking our specialized knowledge, right? And our reflections about what we're doing in our ivory towers and just putting it out there for everyone um, and see what kind of uptake it gets. You know, I mean, I think there's a certain amount of luck in whether or not anything any of us writes gets, you know, um, but, th but this one really struck a chord with all kinds of different people, all kinds of different people. And, you know, some people, it made them angry. I think a lot of people, it just was a was an opportunity for them to reflect on things. And, um, you know, the Point Magazine is so great at that. It's such a great magazine. Everyone should subscribe. Um, because it it is specifically geared towards philosophical thinking for everyone right so they get all of these like high-powered thinkers but you know the editorial process at the point um is very much geared towards making it um something that people can read who are way outside the disciplinary bounds of the author and i just think it's brilliant at doing that and um yeah so kudos to the point really yeah, absolutely. I, we've had um, other people at BYU who have 
um, been really good at this and, and engaged in these kinds of conversations. Simon Critchley, for example, a few years ago, came to BYU. He had for many years a, um, a blog that he, or not a blog, it was an article, a series of articles on New York Times called The Stone, right? That did this kind of thing. Right, yeah. Mm -hmm. What's interesting is about right. the reaction that your um, article got, including from like administrators and other mm -hmm. academics, shows also kind of a, a real sense of urgency on the part of people in universities to be able to reach out into the public sphere. There's a sense that the ivory tower is just not sustainable, not desirable, uh, not mm -hmm. good for society. I find that mm -hmm. to be interesting. Um, yeah. 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 I mean, I think, you know, there's a lot of different conversations about higher education. Um, some of them are just kind of frank and honest conversations. Some of them are just obviously very politicized. Um, but I think everyone, regardless of their politics, kind of recognizes that higher ed um, doesn't necessarily seem to be living up to its aspirations in various ways. I am someone who, uh, I mean, owes everything to higher education in our universities. And I think that they are uh, such an important part of such an important part of this country. Um, and so I'm not at all interested <laughs> in in people who just seem to want to burn them down and um, I mean, I just, I just don't, I just don't take that very seriously. Um, but I am very interested in honest conversations about the need for reform, you know, and, and to think seriously about ways that, um, we can come back to get, you know, getting back to what really is the essence of the university. Like, what is this institution for? And is it really living out that mission? And I think there's just been a lot of mission drift. Um, I and and I think a lot of that is is just institutional, right? And um, all of that I would like to address out of love for the university and a sense of its uh, vital importance for American democracy. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for that. By the way, uh, it's a very important point to make at a time that's so tense in so many areas of public life, including in universities. Yeah. Let me ask you, now we're gonna talk a bit about, well, I'll mention it, right? I've got a question I wanna ask you, but I guess I'll put it this way and you may wanna talk also more about your own affiliation uh, universities right now, but you and I work at very different universities. So you're at University we of do. South Carolina, you know, I'm at BYU, mm -hmm. uh, yours is a large public university, mine's a large private and religious university. Um, but it's probably fair to say that we share a, a personal investment in religious thought and a belief mm -hmm. that is yes. um, in the importance of religious tradition and practice, uh, hope that religion can, um, you know, can contribute to the public good, et cetera. So I guess I'll ask you this question. How do you understand the good that religion can do in the public sphere? And I guess more particularly, how do you understand the good that you can do by bringing theology into the public? I mean, my views about this are pretty simple. I think that people bring their whole selves to whatever it is they're doing, at least when they're fully engaged with what they're doing and they love what they're doing, which is definitely how I approach like pretty much everything in my life. <laughs> you know, I'm gonna bring my full self to it. And so for religious people, 
um, to bring their full self to their jobs is to bring their faith with them, right? And I just, there, there, there is no reason why anyone should ask any person of faith to check their faith at the door, right? Um, of course you, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's who you are. And in a liberal democracy, right? We, we, we couldn't favor, we couldn't favor, right? Secular commitments over any other commitment without not being neutral about the good. Um, and so I just think, yeah, you know, I mean, I'm Catholic, I don't hide it. I just, I think it would be really strange <laughs> if I tried to hide it or if I was embarrassed of it or if I was ashamed. Um, and as a philosopher, of course, to some extent, it informs my understanding of what I'm doing. Of course, I'm not just going to completely check my Catholicism at the door. Um, I think every person of faith uh, brings their whole person to what they to what they're doing, or their whole self to what they're doing. I think that where um, people can run into trouble is when they place their faith expectations on other people, right? And and we shouldn't do that. I mean, there was this recent, you know, controversy at Hamline University, where um, uh, a, a very devout Muslim student um, wanted or expected, you know, any depictions of the Prophet Muhammad, even Muslim depictions of the Prophet Muhammad, to to sort of be off limits in Hamline, and and that's an unreasonable expectation, right? Um, and you know, nobody, no no professor or administrator or anyone at higher ed that is really committed to liberal learning is going to want to force their point of view on anyone because that is something that is opposed to liberal learning um, we want free and open inquiry in the name of wisdom um but so so we don't want to do that but on the other hand we don't want people to have to hide or or whatever religious aspects of themselves so i think it's just about it's it's honestly just common sense and and thinking about what it means to really live in a liberal democracy and um and of course people of faith can can live in a liberal democracy and and i think even you know people who might have like a lot of ungrounded fears or worries about my religious commitments, like just bring them to me. I'll talk to you about it. Like it's better than you just sitting on it and and being really weird, you know, in all of your interactions with me. Um, and so, yeah, for me, it's just it's just really straightforward. I think the only complicated thing is that, you know, a lot of people will give you advice early on in your career in academia, and the advice goes like this. Well, you know, don't speak about your faith. Yeah. Right. Because it'll hurt you. And I really understand why people give that advice. But for me, I just always knew that whatever I was going to do in my life, I wasn't going to hide who I am. Because if somebody was going to ask me to do that, like it just wasn't going to work out for me. Um, and so I just never took that advice. And, you know, I never took a lot of advice. You know what else they tell you? They tell you don't have, don't have kids. I had four kids in grad school, 
like all this advice, I was like, that's nice. I'm going to do my own thing and I'm still here. So take that for what it's worth. I think it's inspiring that you're here. Yeah. And, and I, 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 I have heard versions of the, both those kind of areas of advice, you know, don't be open about the fact you're religious if you're religious uh, for fear that people will think you're going to try to proselyte there, like in the department. Right. Yeah. And so the other one, you know, don't, you know, be careful about having a family, can railroad careers. And you've heard stories, and so have I, right? Where people, um, you had their book writing slowed down by the fact that they had a family and they might not have gotten tenure. There are such stories, but I, I think that it takes a certain kind of faith, frankly, to be able to say, well, you know, here's my life, here's who I am. And I've got to just sort of bring my whole self to it, as you said a minute ago, and come what may. Uh, mm -hmm. and in your case, you know, you've done very, very well and six kids. And by the way, on, on doing very well, I mentioned you work at University of South Carolina, but not for long. Do you want to talk about what is next for you, which is very exciting? Yeah, it's very exciting. It's bittersweet because I, I do love it here and I do love my colleagues, um, especially in the philosophy department. But yes, I am going to be the inaugural dean of a brand new Great Books Honors College at the University of Tulsa in Tulsa, Oklahoma. So um, just, a, just a big move in all kinds of ways, very different part of the country, um, very different role and, and a different university. So, you know, right now I'm at a large state university with 30,000 students in the SEC. And Tulsa has, I think, slightly under 3,000 students. Um, so it just is a different it's a, it's a different context in a lot of ways but i'm very excited about it because um you know one our honors college here um is is a part of the university that i've been heavily involved in and it really is wonderful um and because it recruits students that we otherwise wouldn't get and it also creates an intellectual environment on campus that is very lively and engaged and serious. And um, and I think that what we wanna do at Tulsa is create a living learning community that takes very seriously the idea that study of the classical texts of the Western liberal arts tradition is um, one avenue towards pursuing wisdom as a common good and just focusing on um, building the excellent habits of mind and character that are necessary to do that well. And I'm just really excited. <laughs> I'm really excited to do that because I, I love undergrads. <laughs> like not all R1 professors really like undergrads like let's be honest but i do i love them so much and um i'm just really excited to just you know start a kind of intellectual community on campus and and start it really from the ground up and be very intentional about what we're trying to do and what we're not trying to do so it's just it's a huge opportunity for me and also my husband who's also a philosopher um, has an endowed chair in the philosophy department. So we're also very excited about that. Um, and we're excited about Oklahoma. You know, I'm going to go to a rodeo. 
okay. I, I recommend it. I was just last night, my wife and I went out with uh, some dear friends of ours and uh, he's been my department chair. He's a teacher of mine with an undergraduate. Uh, just, the, they are amazing. Um, and we went to a roadie with them once and my wife dropped her camera down into the bull pit uh, right underneath <laughs> the bleachers. And they actually yeah. they retrieved it. And, and, and she got yeah. pictures developed from the camera back in 2005, mm -hmm. something like this. So mm -hmm. yeah. roadies are adventures in many ways, yes. Yeah, I'm excited. I've never been. It's going to be yeah. great. Well, it's just an amazing opportunity that you have in front of you, Jen. And, and, and they obviously chose someone really very, very well equipped uh, to really get that uh, new um, initiative launched at, at Tulsa. I'm excited for you and for the field. I think it's great. Kudos to you. Well, thank you. At least one last question for you, and then um, I guess we'll be out of time. But as you think about compliments you've received, or maybe it's just sort of remarks uh, that you've gotten from people about the work you're doing in public philosophy and theology, what's the one that's either meant the most to you or that has stuck with you the most? Can you think of an example? I mean, the the compliments or or comments that I receive that mean the most to me are from young women who want to study philosophy and who will come up to me and say things like, you know, I've never, you know, I never envisioned like what it would look like to be a woman and a philosopher or be a mother and a philosopher or be a woman of faith and a mother and a philosopher. And, you know, like now I, now I can imagine it for myself. Um, that gets me every time, you know? I mean, it just really keeps me going and makes me realize, makes me pause and reflect and realize, you know, something that's true that I think that we don't think about enough generally, which is that as professors and as administrators, as philosophers, um, young people are looking to us and they are seeing something that they either do or don't want to imitate and that it is absolutely part of our job to try to model the intellectual life for them in ways that express the joys right and the challenges and the dignity of it um that's on us you know there's a lot of things that aren't on us you know, things that might frustrate us or hold us back or hinder us, but communicating that is on us. And it's really important. It's really important. And it's something that um, it just hits me so deeply every time. And it just reminds me of my responsibility, you know, to really be, to be a good role model. I mean, we all have that responsibility and no matter what domain we have, but I think professors have this particular role in young people's life, and they really need to think a lot about what they are projecting and why and how much that impacts their students. Yeah, it's great. It's a hugely important part of the idea of education at BYU. I know where I work, um, and I appreciate the way you give voice to that there, because it is a responsibility for anybody, no matter where you may be professing. Um, yeah, I mean, like, whether we're intending it or not, as educators, we are forming people, right? I mean, and so for, from my perspective, you should do it intentionally and try to do it well. But no matter what, like, that's the process that's happening. And it's a huge responsibility.
It's so good to talk with you. Thank you for doing this, not just once, but twice, you know, for one <laughs> recording. Thank you so much, Shannon, and blessings to you both uh, with the school year and with the exciting new horizons in front of you. Uh, thank you so much. Really a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Faith and Imagination podcast. This podcast is sponsored by the Faith and Imagination Institute, the BYU Humanities Center, and the College of Humanities at Brigham Young University, and is produced and edited by Sophia Snyder and Bobby May. The music for this podcast is composed by Ethan Wickman and is performed by Nicholas Phillips and Albany Records. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on your podcast platform. And if you're interested in other episodes, check out our website at humanitycenter.byu.edu. Thanks again for listening.